This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Just a quick warning. This series contains explicit language. Episode 6. Old Leads, Fresh Leads. All right, Des Thomas, what have we got in the boot? Can you show us? This is producer Paula Penfold talking to Des Thomas. And here is a rifle that um, a, a farmer, um, Tony, Tony Clark from Pukekawa, found in his dam. And it's, um, it's a property that's not far from the crew property. Right. And the police have looked at this rifle as to where that might have been implicated in the crew murders. We're at the Auckland agent for firearms maker Remington. We've come here because of, well, because of Des's determination, really. He wants to exhaust every option to see if this gun has any connection to the 1970 unsolved murders of the crews. The police examined this gun and returned it, seemingly uninterested. But as you've probably figured out by now, Des Thomas doesn't have much faith in the police. Uh, they've done their tests and came back and said that uh, they don't believe it's involved, but... We're here at Remington because we're not too sure. We've been tricked right. by the police before. They're not interested in resolving the murders. Uh, we are. So um, we want to get uh, Remington to look at this and see if we can get some serial numbers and find out who owned it. So this is one of the guns we've talked about before. Uh, so the one pushed down into the mud in that dam where it stayed hidden for years and years. Des Thomas has already done some analysis of the characteristics of the gun, kind of like the fingerprint the gun leaves on bullets. Well, we know that it's 16 6 screw, which is the same as uh, um, uh, the configuration of the uh, lands and grooves on the bullets found in the crew's head, so we're, we're quite happy that it could have been used. All right, let's go and see if we can find out then. Okay. Yeah? Hello. People want that sleeping dog's life. Yeah, you fucking live like that, eh? So it stood out like dog's balls. Alright, how you going? Howdy. Everything's been covered up. This is a Stuff Circuit podcast called The District. A story about injustice, about a murder investigation that goes off the rails, about gossip and whispered accusations. But mostly, a story about people. People who are trying to get on with their lives, but can't. This story is produced by Toby Longbottom and Paula Penfold, with field recording by Phil Johnson. I'm Eugene Bingham. Hello, I'm Paula. Thanks for having us. No problems at all. Chris Small is the Remington agent here, and he's agreed to take a look at the rifle for Dez. This is how it came back from the police. Um, okay. That's uh, 
Well, it's a semi-automatic. Yes, yes. Okay. Chris knows guns. No, no, he no, really no, knows guns. It's, it's actually was one of the first guns that was made in place out of material called Zytel um, years ago. Mm. Remington Corporation was owned by DuPont, and DuPont came up with us to make a fairly indestructible gun. Mm. Uh, the, the few metal parts on it are just the barrel and... He recognises it as a Remington Nylon 66 22 rifle, the same calibre as the weapon that killed the crews. That's where the serial number is normally located, so... What Chris is looking for is a serial number which could possibly lead us to the owner of the gun, or at least hopefully provide clues, such as when it was manufactured, when it was imported to New Zealand. But the gun is a rusted mess. I wouldn't say impossible to recover the serial number, but... uh could be quite difficult and because of the fragile nature of it, it wouldn't be some of the little tricks that I would normally do, you know, you can add a bit of coke and leave it there to dissolve a bit and you can gently brush it off but I'd hate to touch that in, in the condition that it is, I, I think it may, may come away. Yeah, well um, is that the only place where the serial number is? Unfortunately or? it is, yeah. Okay, so it's not going to be easy. Things never are straightforward, but Des is used to that. He's had decades of it. And he's also had decades of being frustrated with the police. He's not angry, he's just disappointed. Now because this gun is deliberately stamped into the mud on the pond and not far from the crew's property, it should be taken seriously. And you would have thought, if you ever look at that there, the police have done nothing to that, from what I can see, um, to, to find the serial number, have they? No, no. If you're happy for me to take a photo of it, I'm happy to send it up to um, a couple of friends I have up in the States and just see if there's something up there that they may be aware of that, that we might be able to do. At least we can get a quick yay or nay, there's a few guys up there that are quite knowledgeable. Yep, we need to um, do whatever's necessary, really. So hopefully Chris Small's overseas contacts might yield something. We'll come back to that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The series is beautifully crafted and a compelling listen. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The Trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. In the meantime, there are other leads, including two other mystery guns. There's the curious case of the Macken gun, the one the police review head Andy Lovelock picked up from Northland, and now we don't know where it is. And then there's the mystery of the guns that Paul Jellick told us about in episode 4. The ones, including a 22, stolen from a Coromandel batch before the crew murders. Des is convinced there's something to what Paul Jellick has to say, because of the connection with Rod Rasmussen, the crucial uh, Crown witness. Paul Jellick's is the most important, isn't it? Like, Well, it's pretty significant. Oh shit, yeah. Mm. But what does it say? You know, like what does it say? So if those guns turned up on his property, mm. what are we saying? Are we saying that he was involved? It's the natural place to go, right? Because it's weird that the same guy who ends up being the star police witness 
also ends up in possession of a bunch of guns, one of which is a 22. And we don't know if those guns were ever handed into the police. So are we suggesting Rod Rasmussen could have killed the crews? I'm not. And no, I'm not either. Although, to be honest, I don't know what to think. But Des being Des, he's got a theory. That after the police found out from Paul Jellick's parents about the stolen guns and Rod Rasmussen's connection to them, they used it as leverage to convince him to lie about the actual evidence. All that Rod Rasmussen had to say, which he did say, was that all the parts went back to the Thomas farm. Well, given we already know the police planted evidence in this case, you've got to think there's possibly a certain logic to Dez's theory. But to test it, we want to find out something about those guns. Anything. So we start with that house Paul Jellick thought the guns were stolen from. It's quite a major problem though. It's harder than you might think finding the owners of a batch from almost 50 years ago. Especially when you're not even sure which place it is. Can you find where it is on that? Or? When we visit Paul Jellick, he pulls out a map and we try to narrow down which batch it might be. None of this, none of this down here was developed. No. That was all in sand, sand dunes and right. so on and so forth. And I'm picking our batch as... Were well, this, this there, right. one, back, one back from the beach. Yep. Okay. We and, think there are two uh, possible batches. One lead goes nowhere. The owner from the years around 1970 died a long time ago and doesn't seem to have any living descendants. But then we get lucky, maybe. Oh, hi, it's Eugene Bingham speaking. We found a grandson of a guy who owned the other batch that's a possibility. So I ring him in Australia where he now lives. Just to, to fill you in on the background, we have been doing a, a long-term project on the crew murders. One of the things we're looking at is sort of um, loose ends um, that remain after all these years. I tell him what Paul Jellick has told us and why I've got in touch. I think it's the batch that, that, you, you know, that your family owned, um, although I'm not 100% sure. Um, now what happened was that those, those firearms were, were stolen and I, I just hasten to add that there's no concrete evidence or nothing to that extent that they were used in the crew murders or anything like that if that's what you're thinking. But Pretty quickly I realise I've made a tactical error talking about the crew murders. Please don't feel that there's any implication at all of anything. He starts backing off, saying he's adamant there were never any firearms stolen from his grandfather. Well in any, way, in any event you told me that there, isn't, that they, there weren't firearms missing anyway. So. The conversation goes downhill. He's jumping ahead, thinking I'm trying to imply his grandfather is somehow tied up with the killing of the crews. There's no suggestion at all of anything untoward at all on the part of your family. I'm not. The guns get stolen from him, no end up in the wrong hands, get used in the murder. We'll just stop you there because it doesn't. I, I'm not actually. We go around in circles. I'm, I'm extremely conscious of people's privacy, of people's uh, and reputations and so on. I've been doing this 30 years. And he ends up talking about lawyers and warning us off using his name, his voice, or identifying where the batch was. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, look, I've taken, I've taken up too much of your time. That's fine. It's pointless carrying on the conversation. You've made your point very clear. Thank you. I feel bad. It must be weird getting a call from a journalist out of the blue, asking questions about the crew murders. The hostility that I felt from him as a reminder that even 50-year-old wounds can still be raw. And I'm starting to wonder if I'm making it worse. Am I, and Des Thomas, doing the same thing to other people that the Thomases accused the police of doing to them? But I'm in so deep now that I do need some answers about what Paul Jellick claims. There is someone else who might know. What can I do for you? Grant Coward is a private investigator now, but for 28 years he was in the police, and he was the local cop in New Plymouth who took the statement from Paul Jellick. Getting the statement, sitting down with them, and it was probably two or three hours from memory. 
Yeah. Um, and it was probably a 10-page statement or thereabouts. Yeah. And um, it was uh, it was forwarded on, so I just um, sent that through with an email probably saying, here's the, here's the statement. Yeah. Um, it seems reasonably detailed um, and um, by all accounts, um, factual, it didn't appear to be made up or anything. Yeah, and, he's got uh, quite a, it's quite a vivid recollection, isn't it? But I mean, if it's, yeah, yeah, he's a bit of a rough diamond, old, old Paul, but, um, yeah. you know, like, you know, I took him at face value and, um, yeah. I thought that what he was saying was, you know, probably fair enough. So, um, yeah. so that's why I took the time to talk to him. So ex-cop Grant Coward seems to believe what Paul Jellick is saying. And while I've got him on the phone, I'm interested to find out how he would have handled the information. He's overseen 80 homicides and been in charge of more than 40, so he knows a thing or two about how murder investigations operate. Because something really odd happened. Grant Coward took that lengthy statement from Jellick, submitted it to the crew review team, and, well... None of Paul's recollections were mentioned in the, in the eventual Lovelock report. Did that surprise you? or It did, yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. I, I was... Um expecting something to be said about it because I think I spoke to them and said did you ever follow that um, lead and um, I didn't really get a direct answer. Do you have any theory why that might be? Or Well I, I mean I'm I mean, going on my experience with um, investigations they probably looked at it and thought oh yeah yeah that's okay but that's that's not what we know we know something completely different um, right. we'll just carry on going down the path that we know um, yeah. I don't know so it just didn't fit in with what the it, it probably didn't working fit, theory yeah. was mm. yeah. it seems I mean, odd to hear a former cop I mean, talking I like this I mean to me the implication of what he's saying is that the police approach was blinkered they didn't want to know about new evidence that didn't fit Grant Coward is certainly not exasperated or frustrated like the Thomas family, but it does leave you feeling no wonder Des gets so wound up. I spoke to Grant Coward the other day too. Did you? Yeah. He was much more open than I thought he was going to be. Oh, yeah. And said that he was surprised that none of his dealings with Paul were in the report and you'd think that they should be and how he found Paul credible and... Hmm... But he doesn't understand why um, what Paul had told him in the statement wasn't followed up, and he said he never got a satisfactory answer. So the next person we need to try to talk to is obviously the man himself, Rod Rasmussen. We've heard a bit about him, stuff that frankly doesn't sound good. Here's Dez and his sister, Margaret Stuckey. He's the key to the whole thing. He is the key. Dad said that... um, that's when the Thomas case started. And he, he's a worried man now because he's... You'll have to make an appointment. You know, he's built a big... <laughs> he's built a big fort around his house. Yeah. You know, a fort? At this point, I'm imagining some kind of gang pad with high fences and barbed wire. An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. 
Sorry, I'm done. I'm going to close it. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to turn my phone off as well. We want to talk to our staff colleague, Amy Maas, because she visited Rod Rasmussen several years ago for a story um, about the crew okay, case. Um, my name is Amy Maas, and I'm a journalist at Stuff. And co-host of the Gone Fishing podcast. And co-host of the Gone Fishing podcast. So what does Amy Maas remember about her encounter with Rod Rasmussen? So you went to his house? Yes. What was it like? So it's just um, down um, the southern motorway. You can see the house from the motorway. I always have a look at it when I go past. Um, it's got big gates. It's got like a flag. Um, yeah, it's pretty much a fort, yeah. And very simple house, but it's like a fort. It was strange. Could you get through the gate or did you have so to? So we couldn't get through the gate. So we drove up to the gate and we were feeling a little bit nervous because, of course, you know, we were going to confront someone who we thought was a little bit, you know, potentially There were some questions. Yeah, there were questions about him. So we... Um, we drove up to the gate and we just kind of waited in front of the gate a little bit to decide, you know, what are we going to do? And um, he came walking out of the house and I remember he was like barefoot and wearing jeans. And We're taking that trip ourselves down the motorway to Rod Rasmussen, but we're not sure how it will go. For starters, will we even get to talk to him? And if we do, it's kind of fair to say he's been painted as a bit of a villain. Must be. Yep. First things first, his place isn't a fort, but there is an electric gate, though it's not particularly high, an electric fence, three security cameras, and an intercom. So I'll go and ring it. There's cameras. Please wait. Your call will be answered shortly. Hello, is that Mr Rasmussen? Hello. The gate is open. Please come in. Okay. And so we do. And he appears. Where? Oh, there, over there. There he is, there. He's got bare feet. Right, just park near us. Yeah. It's raining heavily and feels wintry. Rod Rasmussen greets us in the driveway in shorts and a shirt and, kind of endearingly, a trilby hat like we've interrupted him on his way for a stroll down by the river. Is it Mr Rasmussen? Yes. Hi. Stand under the shelter. Yeah. Any idea we've had that he'd be aggressive or standoffish was wrong. He's courteous and invites us out of the rain. He immediately gets what we're here for. So, pretending to do with Yasser Alan Thomas, I'm yep. not, I can't, I'm not talking to nobody. I, I can I've imagine. Enough, yeah, I bet you have. We tell him we want to talk yeah, to him. Yeah. It's much about what it's and like being dragged into this case for so long. And it's not going to happen. My wife to... comes out to your future. Okay. He's smiling when he says this, but I get the feeling I don't want to find out if he's telling the truth about Mrs Rasmussen. I'm finally getting to talk to this man who's been at the middle of so many conversations, so I press on and offer him an olive branch of sorts from Des Thomas. The Thomas family have actually asked me to pass on to you that they they kind of just want to get things sorted. They obviously... I'm sick of the Thomas. I'm sick of Des Thomas. And he hassled me and he's left stuff in the box. And... Yeah. Yeah, he blames me for the whole thing. Well, he, I think his view is that he feels that you were kind of put in an awkward position by the police. No. Right. He feels that you were, you know, sort of almost cornered into giving the evidence that you did. No. And that it's not at, at that all. point that things the changed for you. The evidence I give was absolutely the truth and nothing but the truth. Right. 
because I built the trailer and I knew yes. the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, that's all you're getting out of me. Sure. It's not the only thing yeah. we get out of him. But anyway, we can get in here out of the rain. He confirms he did have those guns that Paul Jellick talks about, the ones um, stashed under his water tank. So the guns were found at your place, under the water tank. But he disputes Paul Jellick's version. Paul Jellick's parents come and say to you, what's the story with these guns? You I, ne I never saw Paul Jellick's parents. Didn't you? No. Then how did you find the guns? I found the guns wrapped up under, the, under our tank. In the, so he says he found the guns himself and... He's adamant he handed them back to the police. I never even said thank you, kiss my ass or nothing, and that's the last we heard of it. Right. And I just don't trust cops no way at all. Yeah. So Rod Rasmussen is no right. fan of the police himself. Yeah. It's quite a twist, given he was their star witness. And he's about to drop an even bigger twist. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't Arthur. So you think it wasn't Arthur? No, of course it's not Arthur. Mm. No. Rod Rasmussen, the man whose evidence helped convict Arthur Thomas, doesn't think he's the killer. I'd like to meet Arthur. Yeah. Again. Mm. And I'd shake his hand and tell him I'm sorry. But I originally thought he was a murderer. Right. He's not. Yeah. The villainous Rod Rasmussen not imagined melts away. He's a genial guy. The fact that he even wants to apologise to Arthur Thomas is quite, I don't know, delightful. Strangely enough, he reminds me a bit of Des Thomas. They'll both hate me for saying that, but it's true, they're not dissimilar. But unlike Des Thomas, there's a lot Rod Rasmussen just can't remember, like when certain things happen. Things like dates that would help the Thomases prove the stub axle was planted in the dump on Arthur Thomas's farm. I mean, I know this is 50 years ago almost, so it must be hard to remember. But they're saying, look, that kind of shows that they were planted. Not by you, obviously. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sick of the Thomases calling me a liar. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And uh, because the cops did the same thing with, with Arthur Allen Thomas, they made the man fit the case. They made the man fit the case. I get what he means. And in the end, I'm just left feeling a bit sorry for Rod Rasmussen. But just that act of fixing a trailer drags you into this crap that you're still dealing with all these years later. Yeah. And then clowns like us That's turn right. up. Clowns like you fellas turn up. That must be I'm pretty horrible. I'm you a whiskey and there's gallons of this stuff here. <laughs> Talk of whiskey brings producer Toby Longbottom out of his shell. That's, oh. that's a lot of what our story is about, about the fact that all these people in the district are connected to this one event and it's kind of still going on. It's just never, it's never ending. No, yeah, you fellas are keeping it going, not them. Well, they feel that the police report a couple of years ago could have been an end to things, but it perpetuated stuff and dragged it out. Mm. Yeah. Now the gate will open by itself when you go out. Get the message. The closing of another gate. And the discovery too, that as much as virtually all the people we've met in the district are different, some of them on diametrically opposed sides of the case. They're also similar. Characters caught up in an awful 50-year-old mess that is none of their making. Leaves me feeling a bit strange. I've been talking to most of these people now on and off for a couple of years, and I feel a real responsibility to them. I'm never going to solve the crew case. It's just too fraught, too damaged. And besides, that's the job of the police. But there are things I want to get to the bottom of. And if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. Because there's only one episode left. The District is a Stuff Circuit podcast series. Written and produced by Toby Longbottom, Paula Penfold and me. Toby also edits the series. 
Phil Johnson and I recorded the sound. Blame me for the dodgier bits. The final sound mix was provided by David Liversidge at Radiate Sound. Archival sound recordings from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. And our music is from Audio Network. Mark Stevens, Patrick Crudson and Keith Lynch are the executive producers. We had digital help from Suyun Son and Alex Liu. You can find out more about the podcast series and the characters in this story over at stuff.co.nz. Have a look at the website where you can find extras, including some wonderful archival photographs. Oh yeah, and some recipes. We spent so much time in farmhouse kitchens, we thought we should share the love. I'm Eugene Bingham. Thanks for listening. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.